beauty, brawn, and more importantly, technical wrestling skills. Let's dive into the world of Mildred Burke and women's wrestling in the 40s and 50s, today on Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Can you believe it? We are back. We are back with another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. We're back to talk about Mildred Burke and Mildred Burke Part 2. You heard Part 1. You loved it. You were excited. You were intrigued. You cannot wait to find out what happens in Part 2. And neither can my co-host. It is the Saruman to my Gandalf. It's Chongo Bronson. Billy Wolf is a dick. But you, you know who's not a dick? Our other other co-host host, my former tag team partner and a champion and beautiful performer for the people extraordinaire, Heidi Howitzer, darling. Now, Chongo, real question for you. Can you give me a Lord of the Rings uh, title or no? A Lord of the Rings title. Heidi the Green. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Chago just called me the shit. No, you are the shit, darling. That's why you are here for episode two. You're more the Radagast the Brown, not the movie version with poop on your face because... (laughs) They said that would be weird, and I would say something. You would get it cleaned up. We would go on with our day with that's nobody saying. That's what I appreciate saying. about you. Yeah, that's one thing I really found offensive about that movie is Gandalf didn't go, hey, man, you got some shit on you. You going to fix that? You're right. That was the one flaw. That was the one flaw in the Hobbit movies, but that's a different podcast. That's a different story. <laughs> we could be here all night talking shit about the late work of Peter Jackson, but that's not what we're here to do. We are here to talk about the rich, amazing history of professional wrestling. And we're going to tell some stories tonight that you will say, Nick, Chongo, Heidi, I heard it this way. I heard a different version of that. And you know what? You probably did. We've been working off of some great books. We've been working from articles from back in the day. I read The Queen of the Ring by Jeff Lean, The Sisterhood of the Squared Circle by Pat Laprade or Laprade. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. And Dan Murphy. We have lots of cool sources. A lot of it comes from Mildred Burke's unpublished autobiography. So we're doing the best job to present the best truth possible. And one thing I definitely want to cover right now is that these stories, much like last time, involve a lot of details of domestic abuse and That's very difficult to get through. I understand if you tap out now, you go on with your day, you come back for the next episode to see what we're doing. I fully understand, but we have to present the story as it was told, as it was experienced. And being a woman trying to get into pro wrestling in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Not a great time. Not a great time. But, you know, fortunately, being a woman in wrestling today is the easiest thing possible. That's not true at all. Don't think it for a second. Just see what shitty dudes say on Twitter. But like I said, I wanted to get that warning out there because some people can't handle it. I understand. We'll see you next time. Yeah, it's heavy material, man. This is what it took to be a groundbreaker and a trailblazer and to take women's professional wrestling to the pantheon and to the the mainstream man mildred burke was anti-america propaganda by the nazis in world war ii you don't get more over than that darling so where we left off last time is the state of new jersey opening up professional wrestling for women 
Mildred Burke was the biggest star. She was featured in those matches. She was being treated like a movie star in New York City as well as New Jersey, even though women's wrestling was still illegal in New York City. She was a celebrity. She was huge. She was bigger than life as pro wrestlers are supposed to be. But at the same time, promoter Jack Pfeffer, who we discussed last time, decided to create his own stable of women despite Billy Wolf trying to manipulate him to do otherwise. Pfeffer simply didn't have Wolf's sense of the big picture with women's wrestling and oversaturated the market and killed their draw in New Jersey. The state of New Jersey found Pfeffer's women shows indecent and once again banned women's wrestling. Pfeffer exposed the business and Billy Wolf is a dick. Yeah, a lot of lot of not good moves made by men. That's this. really going to be yeah. the uh, one of the motifs of this story <laughs> is you would have these amazing crowd drawing, vicious, brilliant women, and the business moves behind the scenes made by shitty dudes threatened by these women are what causes the problems. I'm glad that so much has changed in uh, 2021. Oh dear God, yes. <laughs> Women would write to Burke asking how to get trained or would wait until she was in their town and would try to challenge her or one of the other women, as in the case with Johnny Mae Young, who you may know as Mae Young, who had a similar athletic background to Burke's, having competed against boys in sports and was on a national championship softball team and a local women's football team. She arranged a tryout with Wolf and was matched against Gillum. Uh, Killam Gillam, we talked about her last time. Later in life, each claimed to have won the match. Either way, Young was impressive enough for Wolf to want her trained and in the ring under his banner. Young quickly became a great heel, known for her dirty tactics in the ring, her vicious striking, and she was also known for her toughness and bravado, often seen wearing men's clothing, smoking cigars, and Penny Banner, a 19-year-old prospect from St. Louis who joined the troupe, recalled meeting Young who looked at her and said, Hiya, fuckface. I love her. Honestly, the more I read about Mae Young, the more I think she is just the absolute... We we definitely need an episode on Mae Young as well. Oh, just we... the story of her getting powerbombed through a table uh, alone is... <laughs> And Young soon took over Gillum's spot as the top heel and wrestled Burke nightly in front of crowds numbering in their thousands, including a night in Texas where Young caught her with a solid punch that busted open the champ's face. Think about as delicate a situation with that women's wrestling was in at that point, what a lot of blood would have said about the presentation. Yeah, I think that's a level of physicality that audiences at that time would really at minimum be shocked by, and definitely there would be, you know, negative negative uh, opinion about taking it that far in women's wrestling, but I think it, it speaks to the level of just grit and, and tenacity that it would take to make it be presented as legitimate and not just, you know, pull at the hair, bra and panties match kind of thing. Yeah, it really did take it beyond the level of burlesque, no matter how much the risk of the moral outrage and blowback. But I mean, you just think about Candice LeRae with a full crimson mask after that tag match against the Young Bucks and PWG and how people are like, oh God, we this is just making women's wrestling look bad. I'm like, how many uh, times have we seen Terry Funk uh, covered with blood and nobody yeah. complained? Yeah. There was a massive demographic shift as America went to war after Pearl Harbor. 
Millions of women entered the workforce and many male wrestlers were drafted. As with many jobs previously dominated by men, women were given more positions and more opportunities in the wrestling world. Strangler Lewis, at this point too old to be drafted, and we're talking about Ed Lewis, um, not Evan, who we talked about in previously episodes. He came out of retirement to main event shows. Burke's matches were often co-main events with Stranglers, which must have bothered him immensely since he didn't approve of women's wrestling to begin with. I want to know what her cultural impact was on the country at this time, because you're talking about the 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 can-do, you know, during World War II, that's when women's feminism, for example, I mean, started. I that's, that's a literal, that, we can do it. Yeah, exactly. Like she must have been the poster woman of that movement at that time. Yeah, because this is the Rosie the Riveter era, but it's also a time where she was a pinup on a aircraft carrier, if I remember correctly from what I read. And well-deserved. Yeah. And whether out of patriotism or seeing a great PR moment, Burke and the other women performed at military towns with servicemen being admitted for free. And then a huge thing happened. In 1943, California legalized women's wrestling, but only allowed matches every six months. It wasn't much, but it was Burke's star power that got them even that far. Wolf quickly secured a match against Killam Gillum at the Hollywood Legion Stadium, touting Burke as a movie star in the making, sending out glamorous promo photos to the local press. Showbiz razzle-dazzle, sex appeal. It sells tickets whether we want it or not. Yeah, especially when you're talking about the California and LA market. That is, you know, show business. And and it's a it's a intelligent business move to present the top female star in the world as such. And we can talk all day about the pros and cons of sex appeal, sexism in wrestling, but across the board, pro wrestling has a sexual component. Would we be talking about John Cena the same way if he showed up without washboard abs? Would be talking about Biggie Langston if he showed up and didn't have quads that were the size of my chest? No, that's um, exactly why I, I sexually objectify Biggie Langston. Um, For me, it's the boobs, <laughs> you know, but to each their own. Right, you know, right. I'm great, a Biggie titty great, man. Great tits. Um, yes. Wow, that went weird. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's it's very much an element of wrestling. I mean, that's that's one thing that even now you have to be conscious as a as a woman wrestler like anything you do in the ring is going to be sexualized and it's your choice whether you want to take it in a sexual angle or you want to do something different with it um and and in the case of again okay it's california show business hollywood of course you're going to tout the whole sex symbol aspect of it because that's that's show business and the sexualization of wrestling, and once again, I hate going back to it so much when we're talking about women, but it was important in the rise of women's wrestling, because even today, how many women wrestlers are making good money off of OnlyFans or cameos yeah. or, you know, not necessarily nudes, just showing photos in their lingerie that they have a sponsor for. Well, custom matches pay way better than a hot dog and a handshake. Oh, yeah. So. And that's, uh, you know. Even if that's the finish. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> the fact is, darling, sex sells. And 
when you are operating in such a a pigeonholed niche mm-hmm. that these these women, these trailblazers were at this time, they're fighting against that stigma, fighting against that sort of, that was the only spot that was available for a long time. And it, it took real courage to break through that. And it, it sucks. But the reality is there is something, like you said in the last episode, there's something visceral mm-hmm. about watching combat that taps into the same visceral elements that sex does. So even when someone is not traditionally pretty or whatever it is, there's a sexual, visceral, animalistic component to pro wrestling. And I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's not over exploited. And at the end of the day, you're trying to sell tickets and you're trying to make a brand out of yourself. So if sexualizing yourself helps, And let's, you know, once again, if you look at wrestling Twitter, how many amazing independent pro wrestling women are there right now who are pulling down more than I make in a year with their OnlyFans and they're not showing boobs. They're not flashing the badge. I don't know how kids say it these days. They're just doing provocative (laughs) photos of themselves in, you know, in their gear, in lingerie. They're not doing something weird or disgusting unless you are a weird incel who is just so offended by the idea of a woman's sexuality or body but you know what if you sent her your ten dollars anyway fuck you who cares right exactly yeah do you boo get that money and and (laughs) fantastic uh utilization of the new technology because you know what i'm saying the the business is ever changing and they're utilizing the tools at hand let's just say i get a lot more followers when i post a picture of my butt than i do of a wrestling move same (laughs) but aside from the sexual component of pro wrestling and the implications thereof It was at this point that she received a new title belt, which had a small cameo photo of herself in the middle of it, beginning a tradition that continues via the NWA women's title to this day, surrounded by not fake diamonds, but the real gosh darn thing. Because the women, despite drawing crowds, were still subject to plenty of harassment. They made sure to always travel in groups and Millie kept a 38 snub nose in her glove compartment because they also faced the risk from highwaymen robbing them on the way out of town. This was still a time where you literally had to worry about bandits on the goddamn highway from (laughs) city to city overnight. What a lady boss. The women were paid in cash at the time, and Millie kept several pieces of diamond jewelry with her at all times, so they were armed, they were ready for somebody to try to chase them down, run them off the road, and maybe she'd have to kill them in self-defense. Thankfully, it never came to that, but it really was on the table at all times. Yeah, she kept that thing on her at all times. And can you imagine the poor redneck idiot that tried to get fresh at the jukebox? And, and got his, uh, I don't know, behavior corrected. I bet that was a beautiful thing to see from time to time. He wasn't gonna make $25 from that night of work. <laughs> and it was because of this, or maybe coincidentally, that Billy Wolf assigned his son George as Millie's bodyguard. And whether it was actual chemistry or some weird revenge for Billy's endless affairs, oh, Millie, they do it. Yeah, Millie and George soon entered into an affair of their own. Yes. Very Game of Thrones, but I don't blame her. I mean, at this point, let me let me reiterate. Billy Wolf is a dick, man. So I don't blame dick. her for anything that she does that that he would take 
he would take pain or or issue with. And I like to think that George was hot. Even in her autobiography, Burke was vague on the details. The affair aside, George would sometimes drive Burke 400 miles a day to matches and collect her earnings from promoters who were being a little weird working with women. While Burke was drawing huge crowds, including an appearance at the Arena Coliseo in Mexico City in front of 12,000 people, there were setbacks. Clergymen appeared before Congress to argue that women's wrestling was indecent, burlesque shows that led to juvenile delinquency, and in typical Puritan weirdness, a women's Christian group started picketing women's matches in the LA area. The Athletic Commission was able to withstand the pressure at the time, and women's matches continued for a while longer. However, these conservative groups hounded the governor and the senators, with one of them saying, women's wrestling is degrading. Men who come to see the female matches don't often come because of the interest in the bouts as a sport, but to see women in often peculiar positions. It was an army of hell and lovejoy shrieking, oh, won't someone please think of the children? Haters gonna hate, man, you know? I mean, everybody's got an opinion, and I'm sure these these Puritans and these people that, that, that you know, present themselves as, as, as representing the moral high road, they really did a disservice to the, to, to exposing their, any, any child that does not see Mildred Burke as a hero or anyone that stands in the way of Mildred Burke getting the opportunity of being presented as a hero is in the way of progress. Yeah. And, but, and on that note as well, I mean, uh, Never mind, cut that because I completely forgot what I was going to say. So we're we're good with that. Well, despite all of that, in the end, the Prudes won, and Mildred Burke was once again banned from stepping foot in the ring in the state of California. May Young later spotted a waitress in Birmingham that she thought had the makings of a wrestling star. Verdi Nell Young was 15 at the time and was the caricature of a country bumpkin. But she saw the opportunity before her and began training with Young and Gillum. She made her debut in Mexico, and of course, Wolf started sleeping with her immediately and pushed her past Gillum on the roster. So now Gillum had to put over a teenage girl in addition to putting over Young and Burke. She did not like this at all. Did she kill him? <sighs> Unfortunately not. <laughs> Gillum had enough after a while. She ended up quitting wrestling and became a lion tamer and an alligator wrestler. Oh, well, what the fuck? Why are we talking wow, about <laughs> You know, uh, kudos, man. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what path I expected that to go down, but that was not the one. Hashtag goals. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, in later years, she still remained bitter about her experiences. Under Wolf's obsessive tutelage, Nell lost weight, gained muscle, dyed her hair blonde, and was promoted as the Betty Grable of the Met. Soon after that, Wolf discovered 21-year-old June Byers working intergender matches in Houston. At five foot seven and 150 pounds, she was bigger than most of the other women in the group and was the obvious feature of women's wrestling. She started off a mid-carder wrestling and beating lesser stars, but constantly losing to Burke and Young, who often complained about Byers working stiff. Stiff or not, her matches drew heat and money with her rough brawling style. Yeah, it, she had a physical advantage She's out there and she's getting the opportunity. Uh, I, I imagine that was quite a sight to see, to have the established stars of women wrestling being at the physical disadvantage. And with Burke at the top of the game, it took Byers eight years to win her first title, which was one of the earliest tag team championships on record. 
really uh, that I yeah I don't think we've talked about any tag team prior to this yeah tag teams were a mid 20th century invention and they were kind of seen as obvious fakes as showbiz razzle dazzle but that was the stomping ground that was the home base of women's wrestling so there really wasn't much off limits when it came to women's wrestling so tag team wrestling flourished in the women's division that's crazy because if you were to tell me that tag team wrestling started with more so women's wrestling i mean that's that's kind of shocking to behold well do you know any women who have won a tag team title a, a women's tag team title well intergender you know it's funny the lumberjerks uh had an illustrious one month reign as the lucha libre and laughs uh, tag team champions and as vonnegut would have put it so it goes <laughs> June Byers, of course, was sleeping with Wolf, who gave her a diamond ring. Byers, like all the rest, except Mae Young, who thought it was stupid that women felt the need to fuck an old fart to get bookings they would have gotten anyway, in her words. Love Mae Young. Yeah. Most of the girls saw sex with Billy Wolf as transactionary to advance their careers. In the 40s, Wolf had a full roster with wrestlers like Weston, Gillum, Young, Byers, Elvery Snodgrass, a hillbilly gimmick wrestler, and Burke as the star of the group. Billy Wolf is a dick. Billy Wolf is a dick. Right? I mean, he is. Huge dick. Burke didn't appear in the group photos. She was a singular attraction and was treated as such. Lillian Ellison, later known as the Fabulous Moolah, hated Wolf immediately. He refused to train her because she was too small and told her to go home and sit on an attorney's knee and be a Southern doll. How'd that work out for him? Ellison returned later in more athletic shape and joined the group. She was someone who saw through Wolf's bullshit and, and wanted no part of him in her personal life. It's a rare story <laughs> where Mula is on the right side of a moral issue. Yeah, it sounds like she took the blueprint of Billy Wolf and the way that he manipulated and managed yeah. the, the women. And, and while she didn't fall for it herself, she definitely patterned her managerial and training behavior after him. Yeah, seeing a lot of parallels there. Yeah, and sex aside, Wolf's practices were predatory often demanding 50% of the women's booking fees, knowing he was their only option to wrestle. And business was hot enough that there was still plenty of money to be made, even with the war over. Burke was the biggest draw in the sport. Her and Byers drew 14,000 fans. You heard me right, 14,000 fans in July of 1948. That's almost as much as a Triple L show. Almost, but not quite. To keep the other women happy as they traveled in groups and shared hotel rooms, while Burke was driven around by her lover George and had rooms to herself, Wolf established territories to make them regional champs. Still, there was resentment amongst the women against Burke, who was seen as a bit of a snob propped up by Wolf. Mae Young claimed that Millie was a mediocre shoot wrestler, that she could have beaten it at any time. But heck, that she put on a great presentation. Yeah, I can't imagine that she did not try her if she really believed that because Millie Burke is about that life and she has not been beat in a shoot from anything that I've heard. Every time she's, she had to get, she had to get a screw job. She's been double crossed. She's, she's beaten men. And if, if any woman could legitimately beat Mildred Burke at this time, I believe then it would have happened because it was, it was high stakes poker. It was all in every single hand with women's wrestling at this time. One match, one double cross could change the entire landscape. And that's something we saw a lot in the 30s, 40s, and 50s 
And that's why the NWA always put their belt on somebody who could actually fight. Not necessarily a great wrestler, but Luthez was a great wrestler. Ed Lewis was a great wrestler. Harley Race, not necessarily the best wrestler, but he was a hell of a fighter by every <laughs> story told. So you made sure to put the belt on somebody who could legitimately defend it if somebody decided to go into business for themselves and fuck shit up. At the end of the day, the responsibility of protecting the business falls on the shoulders of the champion more than any other member of that roster or uh, any other wrestler in the territory. If you're the champion, then the buck stops with you and you better be ready to defend the gold. Well, and that's an aspect of it that's been completely lost, I think, now, because that's not something that's taken into consideration, I don't think. And I, I know I'm probably speaking for Chango as well as somebody with a legitimate grappling background where we kind of have that romanticized idea of, yeah, we're going to defend this thing. And if you don't go along with the program, I'm going to make your arm go the wrong way. But in a way for the sense of presentation of the sport as entertainment, I hate the term sports entertainment, but in a way it is absolutely perfect. It's entertainment. It's a show. It's theater. It's cinema. And you don't see uh, Josh Brolin playing Thanos break uh, Captain America over his knee because he know he can. Because you know what? We need the movie to end a certain way. We need the heroes to win. The villains will win mid midway through the show. But there has to be a triumph of good over evil. Theater beats realism every single day. And that's why we kind of see with, uh, you know, like with, I feel so bad for people like Dana White who, when they try to book a storyline, all it takes is one little tap to the jaw and years of plans go down the goddamn drain. Yes, that's that's the problem with uh, real life. You can't book the finish, as they say. The Cinderella story that falls short, the dynasty that falls short, the reign that never was, that's the problem. And that was the beauty of being able to control the finish. Well, and, and that's in why a lot of ways, and, you know, God forbid I say this, that... UFC does pro wrestling better than pro wrestling does in a lot of ways because at the end of the day, it's real. Yes, they they use the same template to generate controversy and attention and, and excitement for matchups because people know that it's real. And at yeah. this time, it's what makes what Mildred Burke did so much more impressive because there were many times when it had to be real, when she had to protect herself and the business. It was the Wild West, man. It was two uh, gunslingers facing down on Main Street at high noon. Whether the outcome was predetermined or whether it was legitimate, somebody had to hit the floor in front of the town and that's just the way it was gonna go. Yes. High drama in, in a artistic medium that the people of the time and the area could understand and get behind. And women's wrestling was booming. By the middle of the 1950s, Wolf had two dozen women he was booking, with Mildred drawing huge crowds from Mexico City to Boston, with the lesser stars wrestling in smaller towns across the nation night after night. Money and fame was pouring in. Wolf made his headquarters in Columbus, Ohio, and the women took over the local gym where private shoot matches established a hierarchy. So even at this point in the 1950s, when wrestling had essentially been predetermined for 40 years, yeah. This is how we established who was going over, who was a real star. Legitimate shoot matches behind closed doors, 
to see who can do what against who. And that really does establish a healthy pecking order. Um, you know, we've, we, we both know how that works in the old jujitsu uh, on the jujitsu match where, hey, you know what? You're going to tap me 10 out of 10 times and I know where, where I stand. Uh, I'm going to tap somebody else 10 out of 10 times. He knows where he stands. Yeah. I'm going to have somebody where we go 50-50 every single session and that's my fucking rival. And that's the guy I'm gonna to try to outgun because I know that guy can't uh, touch me and I know this guy, I can't touch him. So it creates a level of competitiveness. It creates a sense of order. Yes, and also, it, yeah, it's an element that has been lost today, like so many other aspects as the competition element of it has sort of dissipated. The con Well, I don't wanna say dissipated. It's evolved into different areas. Right, the things that determine your hierarchy on the card these days, who you can beat in a shoot in the locker room has less to do with it than the amount of shirts you will sell at the merch table. How many ticket, who, you know, it's, it's a similar sort of uh, metric to booking a concert. What bands move the needle are gonna be at the top of the card. And it's much more built around that these days than it was. Oh, 100%, if, that, if it was the case it was Back then, Chongo, you'd have every belt in Colorado. I mean, well, thank you, know, yeah. <laughs> and his pants would never fall down. Mm, yes, so strong. Uh, <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, like we we talk about, like we, you know, Chongo and I both come from a jujitsu MMA background, where we have that dumb fucking lizard part of our brain where a challenge is like. Oh, oh, you wanna, we doing this? We doing this? Okay, well, I guess we're gonna fucking do this. Let's, uh, where are you, are you going somewhere? Where the fuck do you think you're going? Yeah. And that doesn't translate to box office. So we have to put that part of our brains aside because that triggers our sense of realism and proving ourselves and testing somebody else. But in the end, that doesn't necessarily sell tickets. So we put that dumb fucking caveman part of our brain aside, that's for, Wednesdays and Thursdays, Mondays, <laughs> Fridays, and Saturdays. It's showbiz, baby. Yes, it's about the performance, man. Violence with style. Uh, the the rare moments where the shoot elements have actually crept into the business firsthand for me are few and far between. Usually it's with some mark at the show that's talking big shit that trains UFC, you know, that guy. Tap out dad. And then... <laughs> Or you see fucking Captain Doofus who goes, hey man, I, chop me, I wanna be chopped. I remember oh. one time in the lobby, we're here at the Oriental Theater recording the show. I remember one time in the lobby after the show, some drunk dipshit paid Chris Hero $20 to chop him as hard as he could. How did that go for him? He fell down. <laughs> it was the sound of a home run being hit out of Yankee Stadium and the collapse and whimper of a man who found out exactly who he is and what he is. Well, and, and on the opposite end of that, too, I mean, yeah, it's sports entertainment, but before I get, uh, you know, behind the scenes, before I go uh, out in front of the curtain, I like to have someone just like slap the dog shit out of me because it gets me in the zone. It makes me feel like, hey, we're going to fight. Sure, that's an that's actually a, a very time honored tradition in a lot of places because in it it has the symbolic element of also like I will stay a professional and take care of you despite the physicality that we are taking it to by allowing you to slap me right now. Yep. And you can slap me and I can slap you and this is the level of trust and the level of physicality that we are 
sharing with one another. And it's it's a, a very deep symbolic gesture. And yeah, nothing gets you fired up. I was just about to say, it also gets me high. Oh, so yeah. There's that. Yes. But yeah. I have my wife do the same thing whenever I go to work. It's very <laughs> But at this point, women traveled from all over to try out at their new gym in Columbus, Ohio. Filling out applications and sending headshots, it was much like an actor casting call. Only one in four women lasted through the brutal tryout camps. Because keep in mind, this is still in the days where nobody was trying to make money running a gym. You were trying to keep people who wouldn't make it the fuck away. There was no exploitation of the goofballs who would be in, you know, once again, a martial arts term, an eternal white belt. Yeah, and, and and to be fair, we should appreciate the fact that they are holding these. This is like the first ever female super camp, and they are holding them to the same, yeah, same inappropriately yeah. violent, you know, de- the old school method of training, which was basically push people to the point of breaking yep. and whoever was left standing. And so in that way, I appreciate that they were held to that standard and not just the prettiest headshot was taken for the role. And should they survive, they found themselves under the tutelage of Nell, Billy Wolf, and the hot-headed Mae Young, who was getting a reputation for constantly starting shit and getting in bar brawls, <laughs> one of the many reasons why I love her. Many of the women left the group, though, because of Wolf's abuse. He grew tired of Mae Young's independence and defiance and picked a fight with her in Mexico when she showed up a few minutes late. There's no nice way to say this. He beat the hell out of her and she assumed it was premeditated because he would have gotten locked up for doing so in the United States. Do you want to say it this time or should I? Wolf is a fucking dick, man. Billy Wolf is a dick! And Nell Stewart nearly killed him over a smack to the face in a hotel lobby. She went out to the street and retrieved the pistol from her glove compartment and had to be talked out of shooting him in the hotel. Lillian Ellison quit after watching him beat up Mae Young. This is why it's so hard to give him credit for the socially progressive bookings that he presented, such as in 1951 when he racially integrated the roster by booking African-American women such as Ethel Johnson, Babs Wingo, and Kathleen Wimbley. This is a thing we still see today, something we saw a lot of issues in 2021 where really predatory dudes were booking progressive things, and it almost feels like an attack on those progressive ideas when they get found out. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's, go ahead. Um, it's the ugly truth, man, is that oftentimes the, the initial opportunities that end up changing the game are, are born out of nasty exploitation. You know, it's, it's so disgusting, the root cause of how he was able to, to do these things. Yes, he created opportunities that were next level for women. But the things that he put them through to grant those opportunities make it inexcusable. It's unconscionable. No, it's it's incredibly unfortunate. But it created opportunities. So it's 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 hard. It's a catch twenty two. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's just it's so hard to reconcile the two aspects where he was an abusive, monstrous piece of shit. But women's wrestling wouldn't have been where it was, and maybe not even be where it is today. Well, if it wasn't for him. Yeah, I mean, there was no way at that time for uh, women to make a name for themselves in the business without attaching themselves to a man, uh, for better or for worse. And unfortunately, you know, it was for worse in a lot of aspects. But 
now we have women's wrestling. So yeah, yes, it's a sad truth in in all aspects of performance and entertainment. You know, you see this this type of behavior again. Whether you talk about Jackie Robinson breaking through to Major League Baseball, the type of abuse and the nasty things that he had to endure that are completely unacceptable and unreasonable by any, you know, re- normal person standard today. This is what it took to break those barriers. And, and she's so mad. As, as a woman, even today, it's okay, who do I need to bat my eyelashes at to get X thing done? It's not, oh, what am I going to get done because of my skill or profici- or proficiency it's am i pretty enough to get this uh this opportunity i mean it all translates unfortunately at this point there were further cracks appearing in the relationship between burke and wolf he began to see her career as a commodity for his business and took most of the credit publicly for her success in her words i was something you could throw away when you were done with it like an old shoe he was actively looking to replace her and she started to believe that Wolf was booking women to double-cross her to take the title. When women started taking shots in the ring or actively trying to injure her, such as Anne Levern, who once hit her with a straight right to the jaw, then ran out of the ring when Burke didn't go down. <laughs> Heal life. Man, if you're gonna do that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're gonna do that shit, fucking own it. She even suspected him of trying to have her killed in Mexico by tampering with her car. But imagine that. Imagine taking like an extra 50 bucks or whatever to uh, hit somebody with a straight jaw and they just fucking shake it off. Yeah. Billy Wolf is a dick. Billy Wolf is a dick. What is and this? Mildred Burke is a fucking G. That's yeah, a boss. Yeah. Ima- yeah. Imagine. Yeah, you give somebody your best shot, it doesn't get the job done. And, and now then they you just got like fucking dead eye stare fucking at you. Burke. Yeah. Standing in front of you like, oh, you fucked up, bitch. Yeah. I'd run too. Shit. <laughs> Time to powder. You have to pay me a lot more than 50, <laughs> darling. No, no. And at this point, Joe, Mildred's son, moved to Columbus at the age of 16 to work for the group. He was given the job of- Oh, hold on, hold on. Oh wait, never mind. that's Mildred's no, son. No, stepmom, darling, stepmom. There, there is a lot of, uh, what's the nice way to put it? I was it? thinking of George and I was like- Yeah, there's a lot of U-porn search engine options here in this- Creations, story. I mean, talk about the trendsetter continuing to fucking, set the benchmark. Fucking Milfred Burke, yeah. yeah Milfred Burke. Joe, Mildred's son, moved to Columbus at the age of 16 to work for the group. He was given the job of driving women to their matches, including a terrifying incident in the Deep South where he was pulled over and warned to get out of town by the local cops because he was driving the African-American women to a show. At one point, Wolf brought Joe into a poker game with Salvador Luteroth, the powerful CMLL owner and promoter in Mexico and took him to many important meetings to teach him about the business. While this can seem as encouraging, he also knew to keep his mouth shut and do as he was told after a childhood of abuse at Wolf's hands. Starting in 1948, there was a major shift in entertainment in America, and that was television. Wrestling was cheap to produce and was aired weekly on ABC, NBC, and the DuPont Network. There is a weird irony of the DuPont Network uh, airing wrestling, but hey, there's a movie, there's a documentary, there's a lot of information about that. Heck, maybe we'll do an episode about that later. 
But bars were advertising wrestling on TV to attract customers, and the new audience discovered wrestling via television, and they became ticket-buying fans to live events. Between 1942 and 1950, attendance to major wrestling shows increased 800%. Holy shit, that's... <laughs> I don't know what percent I was expecting you to spit out, but 800 was not it. That's uh, what one might call substantial. Yeah, if you look at the greater scheme of things where coming out of a depression, wrestling becoming big via television, more disposable income, more promotion, it was an unheard of perfect storm yeah. to increase the business because let's face it, wrestling wasn't made for newspapers. Wrestling wasn't made for radio. No, it it's live action. Yeah, 100%. And at this point, Billy Wolf had over two dozen of his women under TV contracts. At the same time, the structure of wrestling in the United States had changed, and a group of promoters joined up in 1948 to form the NWA. The NWA did not sanction women's wrestling, nor did they recognize Burke's title, but they admitted Wolf mostly to keep their uh, eye on him. The NWA solidified their title around Luthez and Burke and the other women were able to get undercard matches on regional NWA events. Tell me about the NWA. It is the single greatest collection of professional wrestling bookers in American history. They had the territories carved up like the mafia and they really took the business to the highest level that it ever obtained in the era when it was presented as a real contest. And I would say that it's also the most romanticized era in professional wrestling through the lens of modern fandom. Because people, despite everything we've talked about during this episode, the previous episode, and all previous episodes, wrestling had been exposed constantly since the mid-1800s. But this was an era where wrestling was under a national guideline, yeah. a national organization, and presented as a real sport. And the champions had to be legitimate hookers, shooters, wrestlers. Right. The NWA lent legitimacy to the sport. Yes, it, it re-legitimized the, pers the, the view of the public of professional wrestling. Well, even in so much as, as having territories and you've got your traveling champions, everything like that, I think that was a, a very different feel to what we have today. I, I guess we're getting close to it with what AEW now has with, with Impact and NWA and now, I guess, uh, overseas with Japan. But yeah, you, you just don't see that now. In 1951, the NWA started up their magazine, Official Wrestling. And they gave plenty of attention to Burke, June Byers, and Neil Stewart. They gave equal coverage to women's wrestling at the time, even though they did not technically sanction those matches, which is enormously progressive. It's not something you would expect from the NWA booking office, where even though they weren't sanctioning and therefore profiting off of women's wrestling, they were going to give them equal page space in magazines and newspapers. Well, they're no fools, man, and sex sells, and they had the opportunity to utilize the talent in a way that they thought was financially viable. And, you know, for better or worse, it at least it kept the women's side of the professional wrestling stuff in the relevant public eye at the time. And it gives something 
different for people to look at at that time as well. I mean, this is something that's, uh, like you said, I mean, it's, if it's not legalized or whatever, or if it's not under the NWA umbrella, it's, it's new, it's exciting, it's different, and it's edgy by merit of not being under their uh, purview. But despite these advances, there was another backlash against women's wrestling after the in-ring death of one of Wolf's teenage trainees, and most likely mistresses, Janet Boyer. But to keep it simple, Janet Boyer died under mysterious circumstances in the ring, and it led to another call to ban women's wrestling because they were too delicate for the sport. Okay, sorry, I, I haven't heard about this at all, so I'm actually very curious to know what happened here. It's something that literally could be an entire episode. It will be an entire episode, but kind of the gist of it is, in the middle of a tag team match, she started having problems. She collapsed at her corner. She was dead before she was brought out of the room. Oh, fuck, okay. Um, this was a teenage girl who was brought under Billy Wolf's- uh, Tutelage? Care, tutelage, mm, however you want yes. to put it. And she went out of the ring uh, on her back, but not in a retirement kind of way. It was a big deal at the time. It's a horrifying tragedy. There's really no conclusive medical reason why it happened. Unfortunately, shit happens in, yeah. uh, in combat sports, whether they are worked, whether they are legitimate. And, uh, you know, her life came to an end. It's a horrifying tragedy, but unfortunately, shitty people jumped on it to make women's wrestling look bad as a whole. Yeah, it's really unfortunate, especially considering that it was not the direct result of a landing or an impact. Right. Well, that's like why that. I was curious. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate that it was able to be used in that way. At this point, Millie had been romantically attached to Billy Wolf's son, George, for eight years, and they shared a home in Los Angeles that was paid for by Billy Wolf. Awkward. George wanted them to be public with their relationship, and he wanted to ask his father to officially divorce Mildred so they could be married. I don't know why George thought this was a good idea. <laughs> Especially when you think of the public scandal it would have caused in the 1950s. But he went to his father's office and made his pitch, and Billy Wolf called him and Millie every dirty word in the book. He didn't want Millie, but he sure as shit didn't want anyone else to have her. The relationship unraveled as the heartbroken George turned heavily to alcohol. Because you could imagine what would happen in any aspect of show business if, even today, if it was, oh yeah, um, yeah, I want to uh, you to divorce uh, your wife so I can marry her. And I'm <laughs> hey, so, Dad. It's fucking yeah. weird. It is the makings of a weird search on you porn that nobody. Yeah, should do. well, and that's what's crazy is like it's it would be so controversial and absurd and insane. Now, imagine like the lens that would be viewed through in the 19 what 1950s. Yeah, 1950s. Like this is yeah. the 1950s. Yeah. Keep in mind the 1950s sexuality was starting to come to the forefront in a very weird way. This is the era of Betty Page as bondage pinup, but it was very but that's, much- But that's as progressive as it got. Yeah, like and that the, was like yeah. a dirty magazine kind of way, not a selling out arenas kind of way. Right, so yeah, the thought of- <laughs> Yeah, and it shows the, the overlying theme of this show that the history of professional wrestling 
the shoot history that was not, this was not storyline, man. You couldn't no, book this shit. It's, it's and sorted. it is crazier than any fiction yeah. that has ever been written. And it is, you know, the genesis know. of multiple porn yeah. uh, search engine searches, right? You, I mean, you say this is that. Ric Flair is apparently like romanticizing or romancing fucking Lacey Evans right now. So we've got that going on in current WWE. I like a vault with Shreedham. As the 1951 wrestling season began, George still accompanied Millie on the road to her matches, but was seldom in condition to drive. On September 27th, they headed east with Mildred driving, George in the passenger seats, and Joe following in a separate car. When they stopped for the night, she noticed that the left front tire was balding and she made a mental note to replace it as soon as possible. Unfortunately, the tire blew out while they were on Route 66 the evening of the 28th. The car fishtailed into oncoming traffic and was T-boned by a Chevrolet. It was a miracle that anyone survived. Based on the description of the wreckage at the time, Joe assumed they were all dead. As Millie and George were sent off in separate ambulances, Joe went back to the wreckage of Millie's Imperial and retrieved the gun and jewels from the glove box. Millie had five broken ribs near the spine, a dislocated sternoclavicular joint, a neck injury, and many cuts and bruises. As bad as it was, George was worse. He had a skull fracture and dozens of broken bones. And keep in mind, this is the 1950s. This isn't modern medical magic science. I don't, I don't know how anything works beyond uh, taking an aspirin so my head doesn't hurt. And also pre-seat belts and everything yeah. else, you know? No airbags. I mean, I'm sure that this, they, they went the hard way, as they say. Billy Wolf blamed Millie for what happened to his son and wasn't shy about letting her know, making her drive home in a back brace and an immense pain because he said, I have to worry about my son. Billy Wolf is a dick. Billy Wolf is a dick. Not a nice man. As George recovered, Billy pushed booze onto the vulnerable man and paid women to have sex with him. He wanted <laughs> to the death of his heart. Oh, Jesus. To destroy George and Millie's relationship for good. And he succeeded. Think about what type of person does a thing like that. We can say he was a product of his time. He was sexist. He was violent. He was whatever. But what kind of monster gives his already alcoholic son booze yeah. and unlimited access to prostitutes to ruin his relationship out of pure spite? Yeah, especially when that relationship is with your son's stepmom and your wife. Billy Wolf is a dick. Hashtag you porn search. <laughs> or just here to rule 32 your internet. It's fine. With her injuries being what they were, the eyes of the wrestling world fell upon her possible successors, Nell Stewart and June Byer. Stewart had become a great draw on her own power and had stuck by Wolf for years. Millie hated her for her pastime of shit talking her behind her back with Wolf. And in 1951, Glance Magazine asked the question. Who is wrestling's beauty queen with a full page photo of Nell Stewart? Oh. The audacity. Wolf, always playing the angles, assured the press in the NWA that Burke was back at training. But the doctors told Millie to rest for six months to recover. But Wolf made her come back at four, telling her that words out that you're through. Words out that Billy Wolf is a dick. Word is out that Billy Wolf yeah, is a dick. I mean, does this guy get his comeuppance at the end? I mean, what's the, we gotta squash this guy, man. That's the finish on this turd. 
1952, she was preparing for her comeback match, which Wolf insisted would be a draw against Nell, on the grounds that her endless winning was ruining her draw. I hope Mildred beat the fuck out of Nell. Worse, Wolf wanted her to lose one fall via sleeper hold, which led to a vicious screaming match between the couple. After plenty of back and forth in the press, which often crossed the line from getting heat to outright personal attacks, the two faced off on February 9th, 1952 in Columbus, Ohio, and was the planned draw after each woman won a fall and the third went to a time limit. Legendary boxer Jack Dempsey was the guest referee, and it was declared a fantastic match by the press. The press also used the draw to boost Nell, now 25, as the future of women's wrestling. Over 36-year-old, still injured, Mildred Burke. Mm. Well, the fact is she could still go and she put on a hell of a show and and it just is another layer of her greatness that she is, you know, begrudgingly or not uh, uplifting the next generation, you know? Yeah. The box office was so hot that Wolf had little choice but to send the two women on a tour across the South and Southwest. Burke loved it. How often does a woman get to face off against her rival and husband's mistress night after night? <laughs> Burke would repeatedly beat Nell senseless and cut out the newspaper articles about Burke dominating and outclassing Nell and would send them to Billy Wolf. <laughs> this was that is that's that like is. yeah that's like uh when somebody what do you call that troll that's like somebody that getting is. that's early trolling what that's a pioneer This ruined his plans to put the title on Nell Stewart after the draw in Columbus yet there was no denying the momentum of Nell Stewart who appeared on the cover of NWA magazine in August 1952. Soon, Wolf directly told Burke to drop the title to her nemesis. Millie had held the title for 14 years at this point, was aging, and the injuries were catching up with her. Wolf knew the drama would pop ticket sales and TV viewers and would satisfy many of the other women he managed who never thought their title shot would come. In his eyes, the woman who helped build his business was now holding it hostage. She knew that the title was her only leverage, and if she lost, Wolf would leave her without a dime. This is a this is a sad point in the, in this in this epic because, you know, uh, theoretically, any champion who's held the gold for fourteen years is probably due to drop that thing for to keep business fresh. And I hate to you know say that a a Billy Wolf is right twice a day, but I mean, God, it's a, it's a tough position to be in. It is because. I can see it both ways, where in order to keep the product fresh and in order to keep the business moving, you need the younger generation to step up. However, when the older generation is in a position where if they drop that belt, they're done and they've got nothing to fall back on, I don't blame her for hanging on to that title as hard yeah. as she could. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you factor in Billy Wolf is a dick. It's a big factor. Yes. We're going to get that over. <laughs> it's going to be the name of the episode. <laughs> and the argument over her dropping the title took place at a crowded restaurant with both George and Joe on hand to witness it. It continued on the drive home when they stopped at a liquor store so George, alcoholic that he was, mm. could pick up a few bottles. Billy punched Burke in the face. He told her that when he tells her to lose, she's going to lose. She told him that he can beat her all day and she still won't lose to Nell. She and Joe got out of the car and tried to enter the liquor store. George, who once stood up to his monster of a father for Millie, now blocked her path until Billy Wolf caught her from behind. 
What ensued was horrific. The two men beat her savagely in the street, with Joe unable to break it up. Billy and George left with the liquor store clerk threatened to call the cops, and Millie and Joe sat and waited for her mother and brother to pick them up. She was taken to a doctor for more broken ribs and facial lacerations. Her mother told her to report him both to the police and the NWA. She did not for one simple reason. It would destroy her career. Being a champion wrestler was who she was and ultimately all she had. And that illusion would be destroyed if it came to light that she was a victim. What a terrible circumstance. Uh, and what an absolute champion of character to endure through such a unbelievably unfair situation. Yeah, and the thought of not only being, you know, I can't say turned on by good old Billy, because that's not a surprise at all, but by George, you know, that's And horrifying. I will also point this out, that is the version she told in her autobiography. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of conflicting stories about that and other major moments in her life and her career, but I'm going off of Millie's uh, version of it, her story, what she recalls. And I will take that 100% to the bank. Yeah, yeah, definitely inclined to believe that version. Oh, fuck. She avoided an NWA conference because of her injuries. Wolf attended and told everyone that she had cancer and her career was over. CMLLL promoter and good friend Salvador Luderoth visited, assuming she was sick with cancer and broke into tears when he saw her face. As she recovered, Burke moved out of the house Wolf had bought for her. She didn't want anything to do with him. But NWA Good. bookers like Leroy McGurk and Maura Siegel told her that they would only do business with her through her husband. With few other options, she agreed. And Wolf barely got her bookings, and the money was starting to run out. Despicable, man. I mean, I don't even know what to say about how, how horrible Billy Wolf and this situation is for her because she deserves better, man. She was an icon, and she was a a true trailblazer and she deserves to have her career be more than what Billy Wolf allowed it to be. Yeah, but the thing that's that's so unfortunate about all of it is, I mean, it is unfortunately a sign of the times. And again, at the time, if you didn't have a man to vouch for you and promote you and book you and anything really an involvement, you weren't going anywhere. You weren't doing anything. I mean, yeah, you can see that it's literally within our parents' lifetime that a woman could get a credit card, could open a mm -hmm. bank account without her husband's permission. Yes. And it, but it only makes what Mildred Burke did that much more incredible. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, because despite all this, Burke was still the champion and was still recognized as such by the sporting press. But Wolf controlled the bookings, the money, and the publicity. The NWA magazine pushed Stewart as the bigger star, counting the days until she claimed the belt. In 1952, she finally asked Wolf for a divorce. Fucking finally, am I right? Oh shit. But she knew he wouldn't give her a fair share of the business and earnings built on her back unless she legally forced him to do so. She unfortunately wasn't prepared for this battle. Instead of suing him in Los Angeles court and accusing him of infidelity, and she had hired a private detective to document that, she agreed to let the whole thing be handled by lawyers in Missouri. It's possible she was handcuffed by her near-decade-long affair with George. 
In the end, she received nothing in the divorce. Nothing but her freedom, but she was still able to wrestle and held the title, and that was enough for her. However, the NWA was set to be the mediator on the business side of things. The meeting happened at Sam Munchkin's office. Wolf, an NWA member, was allowed to attend. Millie was forced to wait in the lobby and await their decision. The resolution was that one had to buy the other out. Millie scrounged up the money and Wolf signed an agreement to not promote women's wrestling for five years. Yeah, and it, it, it is another groundbreaking moment in the history of professional wrestling because she was successful in becoming the the promoter. She She got the business at the end of the day and it was a move that was highly controversial at the time and a lot of the uh, other members of the NWA were very much against it, but she was able with her goodwill and everything else that she had accomplished in the business to be the first woman recognized in a position like that. Soon after this, the NWA was under a federal investigation for running an illegal monopoly. So there are records that fell into the Fed's hands about this. Mildred Burke put an application to join the NWA as a booker for women, but Muchkin wrote, I believe that this is a man's organization and I'm not in favor of a woman being admitted. He ended to stick with Wolf when it came to booking women's wrestling. Well, that sucks, man. Billy Wolf is a dick. Fucking boys club. It's terrible. Under the terms of the divorce, Wolf was listed as the innocent and injured party claiming Burke had deserted him. Eight days after her divorce, Mildred Burke wrestled Babs Wingo in Kansas City in front of nearly 9,000 ticket buyers in what was billed as the first interracial wrestling championship. And that's the thing, that's the thing that keeps driving me nuts in this is all these amazing civil rights moments and many of them happening because of Billy Wolf, who was a fucking monster. Yeah. Opportunities via exploitation. Well, all all of these moments that are huge, but haven't really been acknowledged in wrestling history because of one, like you mentioned at the beginning of the first half of the podcast, uh, the lack of association with the McMahons, you know, and and the fact that it was women's wrestling, not men's. And that's something we'll cover later, especially when we talk about the fabulous Mila. If in the history books, you were not associated with the McMahons primarily or the NWA secondarily, you kind of disappeared from the, uh, the history books, especially when written by the McMahons. Things were about to get worse. Wolf was notorious for not working with contracts for his talent, relying on the strength of his personality and connections to the NWA to keep everyone in line. Burke had neither of these things. So while on paper she was in charge of the booking, none of the women involved legally owned her a damn thing. Wolf immediately opened up Girls Wrestling Enterprises Incorporated with Nell Stewart's secretary, June Byers as treasurer, as the legal front for the operation thus circumventing the five-year agreed-upon ban for Wolf. Wolf quickly sold the house Burke had been living in and used those funds to back the new enterprise, and the NWA blessed it without question. The two booking groups went to war, and it was public and nasty. They undercut each other at every turn and left no dirty trick on the table. It was turning the bookings of women wrestling toxic, and many NWA bookers wanted no part of it. Also, the post-TV wrestling boom was beginning to bust and ticket sales were beginning to wane. 
It further didn't help that NWA champ Luthez didn't want women's matches on any card he main evented. Man, fuck Luthez. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard time to for Mildred Burke to to overcome just the boys club like you said earlier and she's she's fighting the good fight and she's giving the girls an opportunity to be led in all another first in all women organization and it, it you know it's really commendable the fight that she's put up to make this happen at this point the country headed into a recession and burke wasn't exactly a business prodigy ultimately the only thing she had was the title and there were many attempts to take that away a Baltimore promoter announced a tournament to crown a new women's champion, approved by the NWA via Wolf. The tournament was sanctioned by the Maryland Athletic Commission, and the promoters claimed they invited Burke to compete, but I somehow doubt that story. The roster was filled with talent from Girl Wrestling Enterprises, Inc., and in the end, it was June Byers who won it, beating Nell Stewart in the finals. This was unexpected and was a shocking upset. Everybody expected Nell Stewart to uh, take it, but it turned out that uh, Mildred Burke had been calling every paper and every magazine saying that uh, Stewart was set to win the thing and nobody should be surprised. So they had to do a little switch up to keep the uh, press on their toes. Chef's kiss. <laughs> After everything she did over the years to position herself as Burke's heir apparent, this must have been a very bitter pill to swallow. Despite not losing a match, the cover of the June 1953 NWA magazine featured a photo of Mildred Burke with the lines, World Champion, 1935 to 1953. It was a tombstone for her career. June Beyer was celebrated as the true champion and the future of the sport. Burke threatened to sue the magazine, but the writing was on the wall. Her business was failing due to the lack of NWA backing and economic depression. She also simply wasn't very good at booking, unfortunately, and further had Billy Wolf getting in the ear of any talent she managed to hang on to. Burke herself couldn't find decent booking, and when she did get booked in the non-NWA promotions, the NWA would lean on her and the show to make sure that didn't happen. It's a it's an unwinnable situation, and it you know it speaks volumes, and it's really unfortunate that she wasn't able to break through to that next level. Uh, but she definitely paved the way for that to be done in the future. Boxing and Wrestling Magazine seemed to still be in her corner, putting her over in its pages and kicking dirt on the Baltimore tournament as an illegitimate sham. Ultimately, her booking business fully collapsed, leaving her 30K in debt, mm. and the headline in Ohio State Journal referred to the trouble afflicting Burke, the ex-world's champion. With the business busted, the legal agreement for Wolf to stay out of women's wrestling for five years was null and void. His monopoly had been restored by the courts, and now, if she wanted to wrestle, she'd have to work for him. Mm. Burke fired back by documenting every dirty trick, every scandal, every abuse, every awful thing that Wolf ever did, and sent it to the NWA. She also found an ally in former Ohio Governor John Bricker, who was a huge fan. He introduced her to powerful lawyer Bob Barton, who took her case to the NWA. The NWA arranged for Wolf to accept all debt from the collapse of her business, to recognize her as the champ, and to book her regularly until she retired in two years, as agreed upon. She happily took the deal. Well, good for her for fighting yeah. a good fight and getting it back. And it just, again, the abominable, undeniable spirit of a champion. Though, as soon as the deal was done, the NWA decided to divorce itself from women's wrestling completely. 
having grown exhausted with the Billy Wolf saga and the endless drama. A week before Burke was set to wrestle in Chattanooga at the end of 1953, Wolf stole her thunder by staging a seven-woman battle royal of the same city, featuring June Byers. She quit the company yet again, mailing all promoters to contact her directly for bookings. After two years of fighting Wolf, she was nearly broke. She was forced to sell her jewelry and took a gift of 5K from her friend Gorgeous George, whose act was heavily inspired by hers. She tried her hand at booking again, but with limited success. June Byers constantly called on her to retire on interviews, but Byers herself didn't draw the way Burke had in the past. For the most part, women's wrestling wasn't profitable. It's really shitty that Billy Wolf was able to derail her at pretty much every stage. And it's it's a shame because, I mean, there really wasn't anyone to take up that mantle because she wasn't passing the torch to anyone. It was uh, Wolf's protégés trying to, you know, take it out from under her. And Nell Stewart also finally walked out on Wolf, looking Good. to make it in Hollywood. Those dreams didn't come true. Nell Stewart later discovered that while she was under anesthesia for appendectomy, Wolf had the doctor tie her tubes. She Jesus. never forgave him for that. Jesus. Billy Wolf is a dick. I just want to say, <laughs> it's 2021, and as a woman, it is still, like, incredibly fucking difficult to get anything done with your reproductive system. So it's it's nice to know, you know, that in, like, 50, shit, 70 years, not much has changed. It's a man's world. Ultimately, as business declined and no new stars caught on, there was only one match that made sense for both sides, Byers versus Burke. There wasn't enough trust to do it as a city-to-city -city tour because Burke assumed it would be a screw job and a violent one at that. So in the end, they decided on the strangest of plans, a shoot match. Mm. You don't say. It was scheduled for August 20th, 1954. Burke felt confident despite her physical condition after all, she had won hundreds of shoot matches in the circus, and she had trained buyers. While Burke performed city to city, defending her championship in worked matches, buyers had gone into serious training with Billy Wolf in Columbus like a legitimate prize fighter would. This was going to be the first big time shoot match since Strangler Lewis versus Joe Stetcher in 1916, in a typical real match fashion that left the crowd booing and disappointed. Mae Young, who had wrestled both women many times, said, I don't know how tough Mildred was because I never had a shooting match with her. And I never saw her shoot with anybody. I trained June Byers to wrestle. Billy tried to teach her how to shoot. You can't teach a girl to shoot who doesn't have guts. As much as I loved June and thought the world of her, she didn't have that extra thing to knock you back, that certain kind of guts to take on all covers. Spoken like a true warrior, and I believe Mae Young might be one of the few women that might give Mildred Burke a run for her money in a shoot. Ultimately, there is no footage of this match, and only one newspaper account survives. So a lot of the accounts are from Burke's autobiography, a telegraph wolf sent out later, and a few eyewitnesses. On that fateful night in Atlanta, as the bell rang in the first of possibly three falls, the women locked up in a collar and elbow position, bullying each other around the ring. Knowing all of Burke's injuries, Byers worked the champ's ribs. At the 16-minute mark, Millie went down and Byers pounced and got the pin. When they came out for the second bell, it seemed as though it would be a replay of the first, with them locking up at a collar and elbow, and them working to push each other into the ropes. 
But whether it was buyers losing her gas or merely remembering the days as a carnival challenge wrestler, the physical stalemate held. And this continued for almost an hour. Jesus. What people had forgotten about shoot wrestling is it can be long and boring. <laughs> which yeah. is what led to the rise of worked matches. The crowd hated it and started booing. The referees and judges said they'd stop the match if nothing happened soon. When the ref conveyed that message to the women, it resulted in a break from the action. Burke took the moment to grab the announcer's mic and told the crowd that she refused to leave the ring and was ready to wrestle all night. Cutting promos. Awesome. The crowd cheered. Either we continue this match or you announce that I'm still the champion, she said. The crowd roared its approval. The commissioner stopped the match and Mildred Burke was declared to still be the women's champion at age 39. It was not a good match, even by shoot standards, but it was important and it left her with her dignity and title intact. Billy Wolf went into full PR spin mode and did his best to make it a tale of Burke being saved from a beating by a technicality, with June Byer winning the only fall in the match. Billy Wolf is a dick. Billy Wolf is a dick. And so something that's crazy about this, too, is the fact that Mildred Burke is being pronounced champion at 39 at this moment. Uh, just probably within, what, the last couple of years, uh, women over the age of their early 30s has become acceptable in mainstream wrestling. I mean, before that, it was 20s or you're too old for the business. So the fact that... Mildred, long before now, is holding a championship belt at 39 is pretty fucking huge. Another another aspect of her trailblazing greatness. Mm -hmm. The promoter was so angry at the inconclusive boring match that he refused to pay Burke. There was an attempt to book a rematch that fell through, and in Florida, promoter Cowboy Luttrell declared Byers the true world's champion, with that one fall, promoters coast-to-coast coast were able to unify around Byers as the real champion. The argument over the match and who was the better wrestler would last until this day. Exhausted by years of fighting against Billy Wolf and the shoot match against June Byers, she was reinvigorated when she was able to lead the first tour of Japan for American women wrestlers in 1954, bringing along Mae Young, Gloria, Berrettini, and others. Burke was billed in Japan as the true world's champion. Thousands of fans greeted them at the Tokyo airport. Billboards featured her face all over the city, and the troupe wrestled dozens of matches in front of U.S. troops at various army bases and shown on Nippon TV. They sold out three shows at Kokagigan Hall, the mecca of sumo. The women were unnerved by the silent, respectful Japanese crowds. To her, it was the biggest moment of her career, wrestling in front of 40,000 fans in Japan in a tour she put together without Wolf's help or interference. It was her moment of glory. That's huge. I mean, and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, maybe I'll hear differently in the next next minutes of, of what you'll be telling us about Mildred, but I, I'd be surprised if that didn't really have an impact on Japanese women's wrestling moving forward because I think I feel like the the Joshi style and Japanese women's wrestling is still to this day taken a little bit more seriously and was taken more seriously throughout the years than um than even American women's wrestling. Absolutely, because the following year the All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling Association formed in response to the big business the American women did and it thrived for years. 
In retrospect, she said she should have retired after Japan. She was 40, facing money troubles, and had trouble finding bookings. And the NWA booker in Hawaii considered Japan an NWA territory and was pissed. <laughs> this led to more drama and put even more heat on Burke. She's heel now. Only in the uh, eyes of the bookers. <laughs> On July 18th, 1955, Burke wrestled her final match in the United States against Ruth Botkali in Reno, Nevada. A crowd of 2,300 arrived, which was the largest crowd ever drawn in that state at that point. The following day, she received her final headline in the news as a competitor. At that point, she had married her 19-year-old driver, Bert Yonkers, moved to San Francisco, and Millie intended to stay away from wrestling. She worked as a stenographer, she and Yonker eventually divorced and eventually went back to training women's wrestling part-time. Her son bought her a small restaurant they called Millie's Chili and used decades-old recipes from Mom's Cafe back in Kansas City. This would be a perfect ending, in a quiet way, but it wasn't the end for Millie Burke, who found an outlet in Japan for her trainees with the Worldwide Women's Wrestling Association, whose title was contested for 35 years. In the States, Vincent McMahon Hold was, on, hold on. So it was the WWWA? It's a lot of W's. It's <laughs> <laughs> just uh, ruminating on that for a moment. In the States, Vincent McMahon Jr. was establishing his grip over wrestling in the United States mm. and pushed Fabulous Moolah as his chosen women's champion. She kept one foot in the business all her life, selling videos of intergender matches, women's matches, getting involved in Hollywood movies and working on her unpublished biography. As the 1980s dawned, she was dealing with health issues and passed away on February 14, 1989 from a stroke. She was 73 years old, leaving behind a career that could not be matched by anyone. A true icon in not just pro wrestling, but all of sport, uh, a trailblazer, a pioneer and a badass. And man, to live, honestly, I mean, she died of a stroke, but to live to 73 after leading that hard of a life is pretty huge. It, it's one of those careers. It's kind of like how we discussed William Muldoon, where if that were a movie, you'd say, I don't fucking buy it. That is way too much. Yeah, for no way did so one person much. do all that in yeah. one lifetime. But. Here we are in Mildred Burke. You are a true heroine, and it is an honor to have been able to learn about the path that she had to take to trailblaze for women's wrestling. Yeah, so now I can beat the shit out of men. <laughs> and that's why I said that's why it's so important to learn about people like Mildred Burke, because I don't want to say she's been erased. No. But she's very much been written over by current contemporary corporate wrestling culture. And I think we've all seen pictures of her, but it's never acknowledged as Mildred Burke or her impact on the industry. It's just, oh, look at this jacked chick with a wrestling belt. Cool. And, and I need you to understand, I left a lot out. We only had two episodes to cover this woman's life, and it could have been three, it could have been four, depending on how deep we wanted to go. Because this is an amazing woman who went from a waitress, a single mother, and a diner during the Depression to be an international wrestling star only to be taken down by the shitty systemic sexism of American culture. 
but in doing so broke through and gave the opportunity for those next steps to be taken to where the business is today. And while we haven't come all the way, we are a lot further than what she had to endure at the time. And if it wasn't for her efforts and for her, you know, championship spirit, uh, we would not have what we know and, and get to enjoy yeah, today. Yeah, I, I read a note, I uh, believe earlier today, she actually trained Bertha Faye and Bertha Faye could fucking go. Now the, uh, the Billy Wolf troupe, despite Billy Wolf being one of the worst humans to ever live, gave <laughs> yeah. birth to Mildred Burke, it gave birth to June Byers, it gave birth to Mae Young. These are names that echo throughout history whether you know corporate wrestling wanted them or not these are important people who made important moves in the business that we love which is pro wrestling and i think that's a great place to leave things for tonight yes i, I am truly moved by this story tonight mildred burke is a real hero and every bit of an american icon and i hope that she truly gets appreciated for all of her accomplishments yeah, hopefully this uh, sheds a little more light on everything she's done and makes more people want to take the same steps. And fuck Billy Wolf, man. Billy Wolf is a dick. But one thing I want everyone to take away is not the abuse, the savagery, the piece of shit dumb that was Billy Wolf. I want everyone to walk away remembering not only Millie Burke was such an amazing star, she was a fighter. She was a mother. She was a fantastic human being who had no sense of quit in her in an era where women were beaten down left and right. She wanted to wrestle. She wanted to wrestle. And that's really what it came down to. She was the girl who saw wrestling in Kansas City, who became the champion of the world, who toured from Mexico City to Boston to Cuba and back. She became the star she wanted to no matter what a man would say. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram. Hey, check us out what we're doing on YouTube. I put a lot of cool videos with old timey photos on there. And, and for Chongo Bronson and Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Oster from Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next time.